Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you would stand with me as you're able uh, for the reading of God's word, I think it's just good to uh, give us the opportunity to stand once again. So Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. If you don't have your Bibles, you don't have a digital device that you can look at it on, it'll be on the screen in front of you as well. So here we go. Follow along with me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this room full of people. Pray, God, now that you would give us hearts that would be attentive to your word. Help us to hear from you this morning. We pray, God, that you would come and uh, give us comfort where needed, healing where needed, rebuke, confrontation where needed, peace where needed. Pray, God, that you would cut us deeply with the mirror of your word, that you would reflect not only the horror of our sin, but also the beauty of your grace, and that you, Father, would captivate our hearts and our minds by the cross of Jesus and help us to find our hope in him alone. We pray, Father, that the name of Jesus would be exalted in our midst this morning. We ask God that you would do a work of salvation in some and a work of sanctification in all of us. Trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. you may be seated. So as we've studied our way through the book of Philippians, we've landed in this section in chapter 2, which really focuses on Paul's aim or theme uh, of self-centeredness and pride. He's really been getting after those two things over the last couple of weeks. So think about self-centeredness and pride for a moment. They're nasty little sin infections. Nasty little sin infections that can be uh, kind of invisible, I think, to us at times. Self-centeredness and pride, very much like an invisible dose of cyanide. Like an invisible dose of cyanide, self-centeredness and pride, what they can quickly do is they can quickly infect the human heart with a deadly kind of a poison that produces some of the most uh, devastating and destructive fruit in our lives, right? So I want you to ask this question and think about this for a moment. Where do you see the evidence or the fruit of self-centeredness and pride creeping into your heart? Where have you seen the evidence of self-centeredness and pride in your life recently? Might be a snide comment here. Might be a short word there. It might be the, a critical spirit that kind of creeps up inside of you throughout the day. It might be some kind of insecurity and fear, maybe that has captivated your mind. It might be a self-congratulation that you imagine in your, in your head. Um, maybe it's impatience with other people's shortcomings, right? Or maybe it's a kind of a dismissiveness, like a dismissive attitude when you um, find somebody that you disagree with. Or maybe it's just that you found yourself being very quick to mischaracterize 
or judge, you might say, someone else's intentions. And that usually finds its way into my language, and I'm like, I know why that person did that. Oh, really? Like, God, God's always, oh, really, you know? How do you know why they did or said what they did or said, right? Judging or mischaracterizing someone else's intentions. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's uh, turning a blind eye to some of the evil atrocities that we see in the world around us. All of these things that I've worked through, and the list could go on and on, right? All these things that I've just worked through are fruit of a heart that has been infected with self-centeredness and pride. Now, the scriptures are clear. Matthew 23, the scriptures are clear. That the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, Likewise, if you were to look at James chapter 4, we read that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in light of that, we are then commanded in that same chapter in James 4 to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. I love James's language. He's straightforward. He's black and white. He doesn't care. He just lays it out. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, he says. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's James. You might consider Peter, what Peter says on the same topic in 1 Peter 5. This clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble he goes on he says humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him which means the opposite of casting my anxiety on him is what is to walk in anxiety and worry the core of that is self-centeredness and pride it's interesting when you think about that that an actual humility would be to cast my cares on God. Why? uh, Peter says, because He cares for you. Like, do you believe that God cares for you? The hard part is that we believe that, and yet we don't believe that, right? We believe that, but we struggle to hold on to that, and that's when pride and self-centeredness seeps in. So, as I read these passages, it appears to me that God really... He's seen fit to confront our, uh, our tendencies towards this fruit of self-centeredness and pride. Some very direct ways, right? God does not pull his punches. He does not gloss things over in this area. He doesn't excuse these things. He doesn't allow us to play the victim. Self-centered and pr- uh, self-centeredness and, and pride, they're, they're not new sins either. Uh, these kinds of sins um, have been around since the beginning. Self-centeredness and, and pride, they were at the core of Lucifer's fall from heaven, right? Uh, they are at the core of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden as they rejected God's commands and stepped outside of those boundaries of freedom. Uh, self-centeredness and pride were at the core of Cain's murder of his brother in the field. He was upset, upset that the offering that he offered 
although it was outside of what God had asked for for an offering, he was upset that his reinterpretation of what an worship offering should be was rejected. So self-centeredness and pride creeped up inside of him, which God even came and said, hey, bro, you better watch out. Like sin's creeping around the corner. You better put that thing to death. Cain stiff-armed God, murders his brother Abel. So self-centeredness and pride really have been um, here since the beginning. Uh, the reality is that human beings have been exalting themselves. We've been exalting ourselves over the exalted God since the very beginning. So the question becomes, when you recognize this doctrine of sin, right? When you recognize, you see that it's been there all along, you start asking questions like, well, what's God's answer to this then? What is God's answer to this problem of sin? This age-old problem of human self-centeredness and pride. How? How does God enter in to this kind of sin infection? Does he just come and say, do better? What does he do? What, what, what kind of hope? What kind of hope can we get from God? What kind of hope does God extend to us as we struggle with self-centeredness and pride? Now, Paul has been answering these questions over the last few years as we've studied this. He answers it specifically here in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Hear this passage fresh again that we just read. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Paul's concern for the Philippian church here in these verses, if you expand the context of what we've been studying, is that they would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but instead in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is back in verse 3. And the way that he envisions the Philippians and us putting aside our self-centeredness and our pride is by having this mind among yourselves, which is what? Yours in Christ Jesus. It belongs to you. Paul wants the Philippians and us by default to put on a humilitive mindset of Jesus Christ that actually already belongs to you if you trusted in him. It belongs to you by default of your union with Christ. You become one with Him. He's one with you. You are in Him and He is in you. That's the picture of our union with Christ. It belongs to us. See, this humility mind of Christ, it's a mindset that belongs to us. It's a mindset that doesn't seek equality with God. It's a mindset that takes on the form of a slave. It's a mindset that crucifies my own selfish desires so that others may flourish. Fascinating thing about that humiliative mindset that we have in Christ Jesus is that it is founded it's founded on something. It rests on something. That humilitative mind rests on the foundation of 
the exaltation of Christ. The fact that he is high and lifted up. It's founded on his exaltation, which immediately follows his humiliation. See, Christ's humiliation is actually the catapult for his exaltation. One author painted the picture like a catapult that is being bent backwards, click by click by click, until the tension is so strong that when Jesus Christ rushed up out of that grave and ascended into heaven, his exaltation catapulted. That's the picture of the exaltation of Christ catapulting up out of his humiliation. That's the foundation that we're talking about today. See, after the humiliating death of Christ on the cross of Calvary for sinful rebels just like you and I, um, Jesus was then exalted Lifted up to the highest place of honor at the right hand of the Father in heaven, according to Hebrews, according to the book of Acts, according to multiple passages of Scripture. Here in this passage in Philippians 2 9 through 11, what we have is we have the Apostle Paul's mountaintop description of the exaltation of Christ. And if you think about it, when you look back at the text, his description is centered around one thing. It's centered around the name of Jesus. Just think about this. Centered on the name of Jesus. Throughout these three short verses, the word for name is used three times in three verses. And you'll also notice there are three different titles, three different names given for the exalted Messiah. (coughs) Those three names... Jesus, Christ, and Lord. So you'll see Jesus used in verses 10 and 11. You'll see Christ used in verse 11. And then Lord used in verse 11. We're really going to focus on that title of Lord as we move through this. Just if you want to highlight that, you may. Basically, what I'm saying here is that the Apostle Paul is painting a picture of an exalted Christ whose name is above every other name. His name is will cause universal submission, and His name is the confession of the Gospel. Those are the three things that we'll see in the text. Work through them one at a time. First one, Christ's name is above every other name. Verse 9. Apostle Paul says that God has highly exalted Him, bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Now here's the reality when you think about Jesus. You think about different names that you have for Jesus, right? There's too many to list today. But we know Jesus by many different names. We know him as Emmanuel, right? Meaning God is with us. He's not far from us. We know Jesus as our wonderful counselor. We know Jesus as our prince of peace. A timely word in a season of chaos. We know Jesus as the chief shepherd, the one who shepherds our souls. We know him as the good shepherd. Lots of names that we have for Jesus. But the name that has been bestowed upon Jesus in this text that I want to highlight for a moment is the name Lord. Um, That is found in verse 11. That name Lord comes from a Greek word. Uh, uh, Everybody say it with me. Kyrios. 
Yeah, you guys are awesome. You're tracking with me good. Kyrios, it means Yahweh. It means Lord. And, and what it is, is throughout the Bible, if you were to do a, a theological study of this name throughout the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament, this is the personal name for God that is found all over the Bible. It's his personal name. As personal to him as your name is to you. And the impression that we get here when we read this name is that it is a name that reigns supreme throughout every generation. Okay? So, Christ's name is above every other name. Second thing we notice is that Christ's name will cause universal submission. Christ's name will cause universal submission. Verse 10, Apostle Paul says that God has bestowed this name, Lord, upon Christ, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. <clears throat> now here's what scholars point out about this section. They point out that this proclamation of universal submission at the name of Jesus as the Lord, it's a throwback to something in the Old Testament. It's a throwback to Isaiah 45. Now, in Isaiah 45, um, God proclaims his own powerful, sovereign rule over all of history and over all, every element of salvation. <coughs> so ultimately, what, 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 what's happening here is that Jesus is being identified as Lord, the one whom, who is superior or supreme or exalted over all things. Ultimately, there is no knee that has ever existed. There's no knee that ever will exist that will not at some point bow in submission under the sovereign rule of the exalted Christ. We need to, get, we need to have this category in our minds. problem i think for us as humans is that we have a hard time bowing our knee we often want to grab the power of the throne of god rather than give him the attention and honor he deserves as the exalted god here's the picture that we get in this text the picture is that at the moment of christ's return think about this when jesus comes back Always love the picture because he's on a horse. His clothes are drenched in the blood of the saints. He's a warring king. Got a sword coming out of his mouth, the word of God, which cuts deep. Got lightning bolts coming out of his eyes. Got a tattoo on his thigh, which I think is fascinating. Love to argue about that one with people. But. It's a fascinating picture of a warring king who is coming back. At that moment, every Christian is going to bow his or her knee. And they're going to shout in a loud voice, Jesus is Lord. And they're going to shout, Jesus is Lord, with great joy. So I want to try that for a minute. On the count of three, everybody with great joy, as loud as you can, better than the kids did earlier, okay? I want you to shout, Jesus is Lord. One, two, three, go. See, now, now, right now you feel a little bit of nervousness, right? Because you're like, oh man, he put us on the spot. Now I want you to do it again with some real gusto. One, two, three, go. Jesus is Lord. Now here's the cool thing. You're a bit excited. It's got you a little bit worked up right now. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. But you imagine the moment when the skies part 
and Jesus comes back and you hit your knees and tears come out of your eyes because it's over, right? Everything you've hoped for is now coming through the clouds. That's going to be a moment. We will shout with joy, Jesus is Lord. But on the other side of that, we're not the only ones shouting, Jesus is Lord. Every unbeliever will also shout, Jesus is Lord, but they will not shout with joy. They will shout in great agony. So the reality is that we cannot claim a Savior whom we do not submit to as Lord. Cannot claim a Savior whom we do not submit to as Lord. Christ's name will cause universal submission. Number three, Christ's name is the confession of the gospel. I love this part. I love this part. Christ's name is the confession of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, God has given Christ the name that is above every other name, and that His name is going to cause universal submission. And not only that, but every ton is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this verse, in that proclamation that we just acted out together, what you have is a confession of the gospel. It's a threefold title that we just shouted. It's in verse 11. Jesus Christ is Lord. That confession, that title, it's apostolic shorthand for the gospel of 1 Corinthians 15. You could do an overlayment of those three titles with 1 Corinthians 15, which is one of the clearest confessions of the gospel by the Apostle Paul. All he's done as an apostle as he writes is he's shortened what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, and he's shortened it all the way down into a summary in the names of Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. Apostolic shorthand for the gospel. Here's why I say that. What does Jesus mean? Jesus means Lord saves, right? What does Christ mean? Christ means the anointed Messiah. What does Lord mean? We already worked through a little bit ago. The Lord means sovereign God. So here's the thing. When every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, then what's happening is every tongue is confessing the good news of the gospel, even though, even though some of those tongues have not believed the gospel for salvation. The beautiful picture. Then in the name of Christ, we have the confession of the gospel. Now, the question is, how do you apply this, right? <clears throat> how does this apply to our lives? Why does it matter? Question we ask a lot. Ask this question of yourself again. Where do I see self-centeredness and pride creeping into my heart? Because here's the thing. Here's the thing about our culture right now and always. Humility is not a celebrated virtue. It's not. Not in the world we live in. Self-promotion, pride. Those have become virtuous values of our day in our culture. Think about it. The mantra in our world, the culture that we live in, is anything to get ahead, right? Uh, it's anything to advance my agenda. 
It's anything to feel better about myself. Anything to have the freedom to express myself. That's the culture we live in today. The idea is that, is that we deserve this. That's the mantra of our culture. In a nutshell, we're living in a day and age, and I don't think this is new, it's expressed differently. Living in a day and age where self-exaltation is encouraged, if not even celebrated. Sometimes we even exalt others who advance our agendas to serve our desires. So think about it. We exalt others who advance our agendas to serve our own desires. What do we desire? We desire power. We, we desire comfort. We desire control. We desire acceptance. Those are kind of your four biggest main categories. I don't know which one it is for you. Some of you are very power hungry. Some of you freak out when, you're, when things are out of your control. Some of you, some of you just want to be comforted. And where do you find comfort in a day and age like this? With the craziness in our world, right? Some of you really, really long, you thirst for, you hunger for acceptance. We, we thirst for those and we exalt others who will then advance that agenda to, to satisfy those desires. Here's some of the ways that we do this. We rely on political force to satisfy one of those desires. Uh, we elevate our spouse or our friends to some kind of a throne of self-gratification. Uh, we, we expand or, or expect our uh, vocations to be the fulfillment of our deepest wants. We, we amass wealth or, or possessions to, to build up our image, to build our empire, right? Good old American capitalism. Not bad, just turned upside down. We shape our children into images of our long lost dreams for ourselves. Now, lest you misunderstand me, and I get emails later, or phone calls, let me just clarify, none of the things that I just mentioned are bad. Right? None of them are bad. Politics, marriage, friends, jobs, wealth, possessions, kids. They're not bad things. They're good things. I actually believe that there is a perfect design for all those things that God intended to bring glory to Christ whom God has exalted. But the problem here is that we often exalt many of those things to the status, listen, we exalt those things to the status of ultimate pleasure producers. And when those ultimate things, we've made them ultimate things to produce pleasure, when they don't produce what they promised to produce because they're a false gospel, what happens? We live in grief. We grieve deeply because they don't produce what we expected. Marriage isn't always easy. The kids go off their rockers. Your political hero doesn't do what you thought he was going to do. Or, or the political guy across the aisle that you didn't want in office gets there, right? We live in grief because these things are broken. Systems are broken. Why? Because sin is alive and well. Until that day when Jesus comes back and every knee bows. That's what we look forward to. See, we've learned, and we learn this, I think, every day, that everything under the sun is broken. And in that mind space, in that head space, we are absolutely right to grieve, to, to lament, 
the brokenness that we see. If you have the ability to look at the brokenness that we see across our country today, if you have the ability to see that on your TV screen and immediately slip into critique mode, can I just say that your heart needs to be broken by the sin that you see? And that that critique mode that you slip into might be, just might be an evidence of self-centeredness and pride inside of you. Everything under the sun is broken. Therefore, we are right to grieve and to lament that brokenness. But in light of the brokenness that we see in the world, in the midst of the grief that we feel, when we realize that things are not as they ought to be, we can find great hope in the exalted Christ. So briefly here, so we can find hope in the exalted Christ, then I want to make three statements. Statement number one, because Christ has been exalted, we can trust that his name is above every other name. Because Christ has been exalted, we can trust that his name is above every other name, especially, especially the names that remind us of the presence of evil in our world. Listen to me, for some of you here today, the name that reminds you of evil is the name of a parent who abused you. For some of you, the name that reminds you of evil is the name of an ex-spouse. For some of you, the name that reminds you of evil is the name of a political leader. For some of you, the name that reminds you of evil is the names of people who have suffered on our TV screens in our broken world. For some of you, the name that reminds you of evil is your very own name because you're ashamed of your name. Good news, and the good news when you think about that, is that in the name of Christ, we can trust that Jesus reigns supreme over every other name, every other name through His life and His death and His resurrection and His promised return. You see, the life of Christ, listen to me, is not only our substitute, though our substitute is a great thing, and it's true. It's not only our substitute, but the name of Christ is also our example. In Christ's death, we have, on the one hand, the ransom for our sin debt. And on the other hand, we also have the imperative to die to our sin. In the empty tomb... We have the proof that Jesus reigns supreme over Satan, sin, and death. And we also have this command to no longer live like the dead men that we once were in our graves in our sin. We're alive and we're free in Christ. We still struggle in sin and we still stumble. And yet by God's grace and mercy, He still says, I'm your Father, you're my Son, and I love you. In Christ's promised return, we have the glorious hope of heaven. It's the hope that there is no more mourning, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sin. That moment when Jesus comes back and we go to be with Him, all the effects of sin and brokenness are gone. And we live in perfection, in the presence of perfection in that moment. It's a beautiful promise. We have the hope of heaven. And not only that, but we also have the assurance of complete and final justice. Justice will be final. 
in that moment. Because Christ has been exalted, we can trust that His name is above every other name. Second statement is that because Christ has been exalted, we can trust that His name will ultimately cause universal submission. Because Christ has been exalted, we can trust that His name will ultimately cause universal submission. What this is getting after is the justice that we all long for deeply. Every one of us longs for justice in this broken world. We long for things to be set right. Every knee will bow in submission to Christ as Lord, even though every knee hasn't bowed in submission to Christ as Savior, right? At the end of the day, we have no excuse to stand idly by with blind eyes turned towards the injustice in our world. We don't get to hide out in our basements and our living rooms. We are to emulate the Christ who left His perfect place in heaven to come to a sin-filled place called earth and get on mission. And there's two sides to the coin of mission. One side is evangelism and the other side is discipleship. We get on mission with God in our community sharing the gospel not only in word but also in deed meaning that we don't just proclaim the gospel with our words, but we also proclaim the gospel with our actions. We are to take up the cause of the widow and the orphan and the oppressed and the helpless. We are to labor for justice now as we look forward to complete justice at the end where every knee is going to bow to the exalted name of Christ. I'll say this. I was on a call this week with other pastors from across the nation. And one pastor made a statement that deeply convicted me. He said, hey, you don't have to agree. You do not have to agree and you shouldn't agree with every aspect of a Black Lives Matter movement as an organization. But I will say this. If that movement is drawing thousands of people to a place, then why is the church not there? Why would we sit at home when those in the world that don't know Him, they don't have a message of the Gospel? Why would we sit at home when darkness is taking over in our world, when most of us would agree with the statement, Black Lives Matter? Why would we not be there and sharing the hope of the Gospel? Us. That was convicting for me. For some of you, that might be, I'm out. You said that, I'm done. That's fine. Do your thing. Challenge us. We have an immense opportunity in our world right now to be the hands and feet of Jesus in spaces that we've never had the opportunity to have it before. The church doesn't run from evil in the world. The church doesn't hide out in a bunker from evil in the world. The church runs towards that evil because it's what Jesus did for you and I. He ran towards us. As a good father, he waited at the end of the driveway as well. We want to emulate and model him in our world. So because Christ has been exalted, we can trust that his name will ultimately cause universal submission. But finally, (coughs) because Christ has been exalted, we can trust that his name is the hope of the gospel. 
I'm going to beat this horse a few more times here. Trust that in his name is the hope of the gospel, not just for salvation, okay? It's very important, and it's definitely the premier tip-top purpose of the gospel is for salvation. But if you don't think that the gospel is also for your sanctification, which means your holy living and engagement in a lost society, you have missed most of the Bible. So, trust that Christ's name is the hope of the gospel, not just for salvation, but for all of life, from the moral to the ethical to the societal issues that we are confronted with right now. I know that you would agree. Here's how I know that you would agree. At the end of the day, you will go to a voting box and you will vote for the political leader that you believe has your values. But you will do it knowing that that political leader is not perfect and does not hold all of your values. Follow me? So to accept that as right and good for a Christian to do, then to say that we cannot support certain organizations or certain statements in our culture because we disagree with nuances of who they are is hypocritical at best. Follow me? I really believe the time we're living in now is a time of judgment in our nation and judgment cleanses. And the church, I believe, needs to get on track. Trust that in the name of Jesus is the hope of the gospel. You think about the gospel. The gospel is like a song. A friend said this this week, another pastor. The gospel is like a song that inhabits the dance of our lives. Think about this. The gospel is like a song that inhabits the dance of our lives. Now, if you're really good Baptists, you don't dance. But we're not really good Baptists. The gospel is like a song that inhabits the dance of our lives. See, here's the thing. The Bible knows no such thing as the just preach the gospel movement that is sweeping through the church. Because that movement is talking about inaction. As if the preaching of the gospel doesn't also include moral and ethical and societal imperatives. Every prophet in the Old Testament prophesied against Israel because of their inaction in the midst of injustice. Every one of them. And what happened to them? They got killed by religious leaders. Those who merely want to preach the gospel <clears throat> as our only hope, devoid of human action in the culture, have discarded most of the scriptural commands to live righteously and to take a stand on moral, ethical, and societal issues. Listen, if the gospel is like a beautiful song of salvation and you ain't dancing to it out in the culture, then it's like you're just reading the words of that song, going over it, and making sure you got every word right. Good for you. Right? Because you ain't living it. And James says, if you're not living it, I don't believe you know Jesus. Right? So, if the gospel is like a beautiful song of salvation, then the outcome of that salvation song are disciples who do what I would call the salvation dance. These are disciples who are being formed into the image of our Heavenly Father and are therefore engaged on issues of injustice, such as abortion. That's an issue of injustice. Right alongside of that would be issues of sexual sin in our culture. 
for which the church is sick with. Right alongside of that would be issues of ethnic equality. Try to pretend like it doesn't exist all you want. Try to downplay it all you want. Right alongside that would be issues of accountability in our power structures. The list could go on and on and on. We do an injustice not to be involved. See, because Christ has been exalted, we can trust that in his name is the hope of the gospel. And if we have the hope of the gospel, then we have been saved and we are being sanctified and engaged on mission with our Father who loves us and therefore loves his enemies well by going to the cross for them. That's what he does. It's what we should do. Conclusion. The question is, is do you trust in the exalted name of Christ? My answer for that is if I was sitting in your shoes, and I have sat in your shoes all week, as I wrote and studied and prayed, I found myself very convicted of some of the, the stances that I have. That's why I'm so passionate this morning. was very convicted of places of pride and self-centeredness inside of me. Therefore, I preach. Do you trust in the exalted name of Christ? You see, God has instructed us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more than significant than ourselves. And the way that God envisions us putting our self-centeredness and our pride aside is by having this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. It belongs to you. Why would Christians in America speak better American language than better gospel-centered language? Why? Because there's a Satan. Because there's an evil in the world. Because Satan knows that if, if you got your nose in this Bible and you got ink stains on your nose and you started speaking gospel-centered language, we would cast off the idolatry of politics. We would cast off the idolatry of our families. We would be invested in people that we think are our enemies. We saw Jesus on that cross. God wants us to put on the humilitive mind of Christ that belongs to you by nature of your union with Jesus. This, this humilitive mind of Christ, it's a mindset that you must step into because it belongs to you. It's one that says, I don't need to seek equality with God. I don't need to know everything or be in control of everything. It's one that says, I am human and I am limited and I am sinful and I biff it daily and yet God has been so kind in his grace and his mercy. I watched him take on the form of a slave and wash feet. I watched him take on the form of a slave and a servant and die on a cross in my place. I watched as he was crucified and my sin died with him so that I might flourish. Therefore, for me to put on the humility mind of Christ means that I would exist so that others might flourish. Fascinating thing about this mindset that we have in Christ Jesus is that, like I said earlier, it's founded on the exaltation of Christ. Christ's humiliation is the catapult for his exaltation.